Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 19. And we'll be looking at verses 8 through 10 this morning. Acts chapter 19. And we're in uh, the middle of Paul's third missionary journey. And he has recently arrived at Ephesus. So I'd like to uh, begin reading in verse 8, read down through verse 10 as we uh, study the Word of God together this morning. So please uh, give careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Acts chapter 19, verse 8. And he, that would be the Apostle Paul, entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them, took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks." And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, what I'd like to do uh, is kind of introduce you to the city of Ephesus. Uh, This was a very important city, a very strategic city. It's the uh, provincial capital of Asia. It was the fourth largest city in the empire. Had a very large population. They guesstimate... From a quarter of a million to 400,000 people lived in Ephesus. And as of about uh, seven years ago, only about 30% of the city had been excavated. But it's a very important city. It was the city where Paul stayed the longest of all the cities that he visited. He stayed longer in Ephesus than any other place. So it really became a hub of ministry for him. So I think it's very important to at least introduce you. Maybe you can appreciate some of what he experienced and uh, and why he chose this city. But if you look at uh, the location in the western part of uh, modern day Turkey, uh, this is kind of where the ruins have uh, so far uncovered. You can uh, kind of come down from the uh, upper right and you can see there's a an agora there and agora is kind of a marketplace and uh, the odeon is where the uh, city leaders would meet and they would have their council meetings Uh, you go on down there's all kinds of of shrines and temples that they've uncovered Uh, temple of domitian later on will be built Uh, there's a lot of emperor worship going on at ephesus And then you'll uh, come down and you'll see some different uh, places. Here's a library right there that I'll show you in a minute. And then we'll have the big theater here with the harbor road that leads out to the, uh, to basically the sea, the, the bay where it was uh, at that point in time. So as we begin to walk through this, I want to point out first off something about uh, the water level, something that made Ephesus such a commercial powerhouse was that it was located on the sea and it had a great seaport. That is no longer in existence. 
Uh, for example, if you look at this particular picture on the right, the water came up to the end of that harbor road that descended from the theater. This is what it looks like now. It's all silted in by the river. It's all green. There's, there's, no, there's no more bay here at all. If you uh, look at where, it's, where the water is situated now, if you look right here, this is that harbor road that I was telling you about that you saw earlier. Here's the silted in part, but it goes all the way now to the water level way out here. There, got a white arrow going. So all of this is silted in about four miles worth of it. So what used to be a waterfront and a harbor right there at the city now is four miles away because of all the silting that has occurred over the centuries since Paul was there. Uh, you also will find, uh, let's see, let me back up one. You'll also find in Ephesus a lot of um, homes that were built along the sides of the hills. Ephesus is kind of nestled in the hills. It was elevated not only for uh, defense, but also just uh, for protection and wind, elevation, whatever. But it was, uh, it was nestled in between hills and the richer people built some very lavish homes up the side of the hill. Now the reason why I'm going to show you a few pictures of this and the interest to me is that when we talk about house churches, when a church was established, they didn't have a church building, so they met in homes. And if someone from the wealthy class was converted, then you could fit a lot of people inside their homes. So just looking at a few of these uh, pictures, this is some of the uh, tile floor that still has been preserved. So you can see the craftsmanship that they uh, had back then. Here is one of the rooms. This is what it looks like back when we were there. And all of these tables are set up by workmen. So they wouldn't have been actually there in the first century. But uh, they're, they're uncovering and uh, exposing the, uh, the room. And this is what they think that same room might have looked like in the first century had it all been finished out. This is, may have been the triclinium, which is where they ate their meals. But a pretty good sized room. Here's uh, because it was terraced up the side of the hill. You're kind of looking at some of the other rooms inside this uh, uh, wonderful home. And this is more at the top looking down the hill. But you can see the different smaller rooms, probably bedrooms, kitchen, things like that. And so uh, you could see that in some of these rooms, they could have probably squeezed in 50, 60, maybe 100 people if it was, if it was large enough for the early church. This is one of the major streets uh, running down the hill to uh, the city. And this is the uh, facade of the ancient library that existed back then. This is the third largest library of the ancient world was at Ephesus. And it's beautifully carved with uh, all kinds of... Uh, of uh, statues on the little podiums in between the columns. Very beautiful. But this was a very famous library that you can go visit. From here, this is where the, uh, the library is located. And now we're going to go over and look at the theater and the harbor road just for a second. The theater figures very prominently in Acts chapter 19. So here's a picture of the theater. 
Again, they use the natural slope of the hillside to create a theater. This theater could fit 25,000 people in it. So a very large theater. Uh, let's see here. I'm going backwards. You can see uh, on more of a scale of uh, how steep it was, three different tiers of bleachers, you know, uh, stone bleachers, I guess we would call them. So uh, very, very steep, very beautiful. This is the stage. And when we were there, there's a there's a a bunch of Korean tourists who were singing How Great Thou Art. It was really kind of a neat experience. This is uh, from one of the upper levels. You're looking down on the theater. And of course, uh, in the theater, they would do They'd have wild animal fights, they'd have comedies, they'd have plays, there'd be an orchestra, maybe even some gladiator or, or uh, fights going on there as well. And you can see the harbor road that goes out and it ends right out there in the trees because, again, it's all been silted in. But uh, Demetrius, as we'll see later on in Acts 19, who's a silversmith, uh, made silver shrines for Artemis, which we'll look at in just a moment. And he organized a riot against Paul, claiming that Paul's ministry was undermining their business. So that he probably looked at the Apostle Paul like he was a coronavirus in, in person. You know, that he was going to shut down all their businesses. We're all going to have to lose our job, file for unemployment, whatever it might be. So they had a big riot at this theater. Remember, they couldn't find Paul. Some of his upper crust friends actually persuaded him not to go to the theater, but they brought out Gaius and Aristarchus in the theater, and there's a big mob here. And for two hours, they shouted out, Great is Artemis, you know, who is the goddess that they worshiped. So that took place here at this theater. So that will factor in later on in the book of Acts. Again, the Harbor Road. 33 feet wide, went right down to the port, the waterfront, so they'd be hauling in all this cargo for all the shops. And here's some of the guys dressed up in costumes of what they may have been wearing back in the day. And then from here, we go all the way up to the uh, top to the Temple of Artemis, or Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Matter of fact, there's uh, some accounts of some who visited these wonders of the world, and they said this temple was the top. It was the most incredible of all of them. Uh, here's a kind of a, a depiction of the ancient drawing. It was rebuilt several times. The bottom picture on the right would be the one that would represent uh, the temple when Paul was there. Artemis was a goddess. She was kind of a fertility goddess, goddess of hunting, goddess of domestic animals, goddess who protected the lower classes of people. And in the worship of these gods, there's a lot of prostitution, a lot of superstition. And this temple also served as a bank where people from all over the world would bring their money and they must have had some hidden vault in there that they would keep it safe. The size of this thing is actually larger than a football field, counting the end zones. And here's a uh, picture of what it probably look like in Paul's day. Just a phenomenal building. The largest building in the world at that time. 
<clears throat> but now you want to see what it looks like today. And they've had to stack these uh, pieces up to make one of the columns just to give you an idea of the height of it. But uh, now, of course, it's in total ruins. And such is the destiny of every false religion. It's going to end up like this. Jesus Christ and He alone is forever. But uh, I think it's a testimony to the folly of man in worshiping all these crazy different uh, idols. Okay, back to an overview of just the city. What I'd like to do now is to walk through uh, quickly Paul's ministry. So look at Acts chapter 19, verse 8. Again, notice that he entered the synagogue. That was always his uh, method of ministry. He always went to the Jews first. He'd enter a city. If there's a synagogue, he would go there first. And we're told in verse 8 that he entered the synagogue. Of course, Paul is a rabbi. I mean, he has credentials if people are interested in that. Very highly educated, well-trained. And so he would be given opportunities to speak. And he was uh, there in verse 8, continued to speak out boldly for three months. And this whole concept of him speaking out boldly certainly reflects the fact that he was energized by his experience of seeing the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He was energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the truths of the Gospel. And He was empowered by His love for sinners and their lost souls. So in boldness, He was speaking out and, and uh, addressing the Jews who met there and the God-fearing Greeks. There's always some of those usually mixed in. And He was there for three months. And we're told in verse 8 that He was reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He was reasoning. That's a word that we get our word dialogue from. It suggests that he was willing to engage in debate and discussion and careful analysis and Q&A. And he would take them. He would, Of course, they would hold to the Scriptures, the Old Testament. So he would use that as his foundation and he would preach to them Jesus Christ as their Messiah, His atoning death, His bodily resurrection, and His ascension to the right hand of God the Father. And he would reason with these Jews, trying to show them from the Word of God the truths of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're also told that he was persuading them and some of them came to faith. Uh, his ministry was blessed by God to a certain degree. And uh, some of them came to faith, again, by, by God's grace. But not all of them. Now notice what he was preaching about. In verse 8, the kingdom of God. That's interesting. We oftentimes don't think of the importance of the kingdom of God, but that was a major part of Paul's preaching ministry was about the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at that more in a moment about what that means. What is the kingdom of God and what was Paul actually saying about it? But we'll postpone that for a moment. But he was persuading them, but... Some came to faith, but certainly not all. Look at verse 9. But when some were being hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, He withdrew from them. So now you have the Jewish opposition. I'm assuming this came from some of the leaders within the synagogue. 
seeing some of their people being persuaded to become followers of Jesus Christ. And they were hardened in their heart. And isn't that sometimes the case when we share the Gospel with people? Their hearts don't get soft. Their hearts get very hard. It's said that the Gospel Son can melt wax and it can harden clay. And the depraved hearts of clay will only harden under the preaching of the light of the Gospel unless God takes out that heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh which enables them to repent and believe. Apart from that, they're hardened. They're also disobedient. Their wills are rebelling against the message of Christ, the command to repent and believe, so they're disobedient. And they're speaking evil of the way so that their heart is now erupting out of their mouth and their words reflect the character of their heart and they're speaking evil about the way, that is, the way of Christ, the Gospel, the church. So they vilified the Lord Jesus. They vilified Paul. They vilified the Gospel and everything. So in verse 9, as a result of that, Paul withdrew from them and took away the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So Paul withdraws. And so instead of just staying in the synagogue, he now leaves the synagogue. So he's going to now begin to focus more upon the Gentiles. And we saw this back in the Galatia region as well. Now notice the building is called the School of Tyrannus. It was actually a lecture hall. And a Tyrannus means tyrant or dictator or despot. And John Stott, one of the commentators I was reading, uh, speculates and wonders if that name was given to him by his parents or by his students. This teacher, he's a tyrant. He's a, he's a dictator. But he was either the owner of the hall or a prominent teacher philosopher who taught there regularly. And uh, so this hall, this school, this lecture hall was leased by the Apostle Paul and those with him. And they stayed there for two years. And this is really kind of a new strategy of the Apostle Paul where before he would go for a, a few weeks, a few months, and then leave and go to the next town. When he comes to Corinth, he stays there for a year and a half. And then he goes back home, starts a third missionary journey, goes to Ephesus, and he's there for, later on he'll say he's there for three years. So over two years he's there. So it's a new strategy that he has to stay put, build a big foundation, establish a, a, a school, if you will, train people for the ministry, and just engage the culture of the people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what he's beginning to do here. Now, some of the Greek manuscripts of this verse in verse 9 add some additional ideas and thoughts that most don't believe they're inspired by God, but they're, but they're interesting and maybe of, of help here. Uh, they say that uh, Tyrannus would teach in the cool of the morning hours from maybe 7 to 11 or 7 to 10 when it's cool in the morning. The Tyrannus who owned it or was the main teacher would use the cool morning to do his lecturing. 
And then he would stop at 11 and that's when Paul would come in and Paul would, would lecture or teach or debate or dialogue from 11 till 4 p.m. And then after that time, in the cool of the evening, then Tyrannus or someone else may come back in and lecture uh, during the evening. Now, during that 11 to 4, when Paul would have been there, that's when most people take their afternoon siesta and break. It was said that there's probably more people asleep at 1 o'clock in the afternoon than 1 o'clock in the morning because they just took siestas. So that says if you were going to go listen to Paul, you had to give up your, your break, your nap time, your siesta. So it really spoke highly that he would be able to do that during the heat of the day and be able to draw a crowd, which he, he certainly drew a number of people. Uh, the ministry of Paul during this time, and it, by the way, he was there daily, we're told in verse 9. He was reasoning daily. Uh, so this went on again for several years. But his ministry in verse 9 is uh, certainly training up the disciples. Notice he took away the disciples. So these had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So he takes them into the school of Tyrannus. And what does he do with them? He deepens them in the truths of Scripture, into the study of the Word of God. He teaches them theology. He trains them. He works with them to develop leaders within the church. So he is ministering to the disciples, training them and equipping them to carry on the ministry. So it's kind of like a, a, a seminary that he's doing in part of his ministry there. He is developing future leaders and teaching them from the Scriptures and uh, teaching them how to follow Christ and to preach the Gospel. We also know that he was engaging in evangelism, that new people would come in and hear him speak. And we get this from the word reasoning in verse 9. It's the same word of uh, we saw in verse 8 as well. It implies dialogue, discussion, debate. So there's probably unbelievers walking in, Greeks walking in, hearing, well, there's a new religious guy teaching at the school of Tyrannus. So they would go down there and listen to him, ask questions. Paul would interact with them, debate with them, and engage, no doubt, in, in biblical apologetics. So Paul was preaching the Gospel to new people, unbelievers that would visit the school, the lecture hall, and he's reaching out to the Gentiles who are the large majority in Ephesus. So Paul would have uh, confronted their prevailing worldviews, their idolatry, and he would have uh, engaged them with their culture, their values, and examined them in light of Scripture. And he would seek to engage their hearts and their minds with the Gospel of Jesus Christ, showing the superiority of Jesus Christ. So he was there daily, every day, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with these uh, people who held to false religions or no religion, just pagan unbelievers among the Gentiles. And so he not only was discipling believers, he was reaching out in evangelism there, and he was also training for missions and sending out missionaries. We see this in verse 10. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So not all the people in Asia so what Paul is doing, because he's, 
kind of planted his roots there in Ephesus. He's engaging in this uh, theological seminary work in the school of Tyrannus. He's doing evangelism. And he's also equipping men to go out with the gospel to all these other cities in Asia Minor. So he's, uh, he's doing a tremendous uh, ministry there. Of course, many of these people come from the occult, which is very big in Ephesus. We'll get into that later on in uh, Acts chapter 19. But he was sending them out so that in verse 10, all of Asia basically heard the word of the Lord. Not only sending them into the, into the synagogues to evangelize the Jews, but also to the Greeks. So tremendous missionary outreach going on. Now later in Acts 20, verse 34, Paul will meet with the Ephesian elders down at Miletus on his way back to uh, Jerusalem. And he will appeal to them and he says to them that he supported himself while he was in Ephesus. So this was, this was Paul's day. He would get up in the morning and at some point he would work as a tent maker probably during the cool hours of the morning. So he's working. He's supporting himself. He's supporting others around him when, when he wasn't supported by other churches like at Philippi when he was in uh, Corinth. But he's working, he says. And then at 11 o'clock, he shuts down his tent-making business and he goes to the school of Tyrannus and he teaches and lectures and debates and dialogues from 11 to 4 in the afternoon. And then he says later in Acts 20 that he also, when he was there in Ephesus, taught them both publicly and from house to house. So at four o'clock, he may have grabbed something to eat and then he probably spent the rest of the evening going from house to house, teaching, discipling, training. In other words, here is a man who is totally sold out and committed to serving Christ. From early in the morning, all day long. He was involved in ministry, teaching, reaching out with the Gospel to the lost, training believers, training households, training fathers, training homes, so that they can have a godly witness in the community. From morning till evening. Go to bed. Next morning, do it all over again for two years. He was completely committed. He puts, puts us to shame because he was that committed to Jesus Christ. He was a tireless uh, man full of the grace of God. His love for the Gospel, his love for Christ, uh, again, just is a great challenge to us. Now, it may have been that during this time, well, it would have been during this time, that his disciples who took the gospel throughout Asia Minor would have gone to the seven churches of Revelation. So they're here at Ephesus. They go to Smyrna. They preach the gospel there. Church is founded. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And all of these are the missionaries that Paul is sending out. He probably didn't go there himself more than likely. But his, um, his disciples went out into all the areas of Asia Minor with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now later on, at some point, John, the apostle, moves to Ephesus. And probably Mary, Jesus' mother, if she's still alive, goes to Ephesus with him because he had custody or charge of her, right? So John ends up here. Eventually he'll be exiled from Ephesus out to the island of Patmos. And that's where he'll write the book of Revelation. And he's writing letters to all of these seven churches that were probably founded by Paul's missionary ministry when he was at Ephesus. So it kind of ties in some of these uh, these things for us. There's actually a monument at, at Ephesus of the tomb of John the Apostle where supposedly he ended up after his banishment to the Isle of Patmos. He was later on brought back to Ephesus where he died and they claim that his, uh, his tomb is there uh, in Ephesus. Well, that's kind of an overview of uh, Ephesus and the ministry that Paul had there. I want to kind of go back now and focus on the concept of the kingdom of God because that's what he was preaching. He was preaching to the Jews the kingdom of God and he was preaching to the Gentiles the kingdom of God. That was a prominent aspect of his, of his ministry. And you can actually see this in the book of Acts, how prominent the gospel connected with the kingdom of God was. For example, just looking at the book of Acts, In chapter 1, verse 3, this is Jesus appearing over a period of 40 days speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So Jesus, during His resurrection appearances, His primary message was distilled in the concept of the kingdom of God. Now the disciples didn't understand it that well. Uh, Their their understanding is growing gradually because they're still thinking of a military coup and overthrow of Rome, elevating Israel over all the nations. And that's not the nature of the kingdom that Jesus brought. But you look at Acts 8. This is Philip who goes to the Samaritans and he's preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Later on in Paul's first missionary journey, Acts 14, he says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Here's probably the future kingdom in view. Acts 20, 25. Of course, we have it in here in Acts 19. But we have the Apostle Paul who now says, I went among you, uh, went about preaching the kingdom. You'll no longer see my face. He's talking to the Ephesian elders there at Miletus. Saying, I went among you preaching the kingdom. In Acts 28, when he's in Rome, when he's incarcerated, says he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. And then at the end of the book, he's preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus. So the kingdom of God is very, very important. So we ask ourselves, what is the kingdom of God? That was a major part of what Paul preached. Well, there's different ways to understand the kingdom of God. For example, you can think of it in terms of it representing the realm and the reign. The realm would be the domain over which the king rules. That's his kingdom. Okay, it would be the, the land territory over which he actually rules. Now we think of the United Kingdom today, which is Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God's kingdom would be Basically, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. In the new covenant, it's going to be the new heavens and the new earth. 
But when we look at the covenantal aspect of God's kingdom, we're looking at uh, the realm in the Old Testament would be Canaan. New, new covenant's going to be the entire universe. But this is uh, there's another aspect of the kingdom. I'm just going to mention it and then not really deal with it. But uh, you could also think of the kingdom as God's sovereign rule over all creation. For example, Psalm 103 verse 19 says the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. So that's His universal kingdom where God rules and reigns over everything in all the cosmos. The kingdom we're talking about is more the covenantal kingdom. The kingdom that God gives to His people through covenants. Now in the Old Testament, God ruled through the covenants over His people Israel. But Israel and the Davidic kings repeatedly failed to abide by the covenant. So as a result of that, God sent them prophets that brought a message of judgment upon them, but also a message of a promise of a new covenant with a new king and a new heart. For before they were not able to keep the law because of their depraved heart, now God will give them a new heart which is filled by the Spirit of God, which will enable them to walk according to God's laws. And through this future coming Messianic King, God's reign and rule would be restored in the hearts of His people. And the grace of this kingdom reign of God brings salvation. And this is the idea of the reign of God. It's the king's active reign or rule over his people. So on one hand, you can think of the kingdom as the territory, but, but the, really the main idea of kingdom is God's authority and power to reign over his people. That's the main idea of the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, they needed a new heart. They were under the old covenant. They had the old heart of stone. They never could submit to the rule of God. So God's reign never was fulfilled as it was intended to because of the sinfulness of their heart. But in the new covenant, Jesus Christ now comes and inaugurates it. Notice he's, His birth was the announcement of a newborn what king. He comes as a king. The ministry of John the Baptist prepared the way for the coming of God's kingdom. And Christ was crucified in part because He admitted to Pilate that He was a king. He said, My kingdom is not of this world. He said to Pilate, You say correctly that I am a king, and for this I have been born, and for this I have come to the world to testify to the truth. And on the cross, as our king, He defeated our enemies, He defeated Satan, He defeated our sin, and in the empty tomb, He defeated death. He defeated all of our enemies. And then He was resurrected and ascended to the Davidic throne in heaven where He now sits and rules forever. So He's the new King. He now can change our heart. He gives a new heart. And the Spirit indwells us so that now God has a new covenant people that submit to the reign and rule of God in their lives. Not perfectly. But that's God's grace. That's God's reign. That's God's kingdom. That's God's kingdom being fulfilled. So you can think of it as a realm, but the main idea is the active reign, the rule of Christ in the hearts 
of His people. And then there's a future aspect. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's why we need a glorified body. So that's referring to the future kingdom because the present kingdom still is the first fruits of it. It's not the fullness of the kingdom. It's still partial in its glory. But a future kingdom awaits at the second coming. So there is a future aspect of this kingdom. But there's a present kingdom. And Paul was preaching about both of these. There's a present form of the kingdom. It came with Jesus Christ. It was not postponed. It came. So in Matthew 12, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It not might come in the future. No, it has come. It's here. It's operating. And it was operating through the Lord Jesus in the power of the Spirit to cast out demons. So the kingdom came and it was being manifested in kingdom power. He was ruling over His enemies. And then Paul says in Colossians 1 that believers have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So every believer is now a citizen, a member of Christ's kingdom. This is going on now. We are now kingdom members. And then Romans 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So all this is to point out that there's a future phase of the kingdom, but there's a present phase. And when Paul was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was including not only the message of salvation, but that it also involves a lifestyle of living under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom. The kingdom is more than just being forgiven of all your sins. The kingdom involves Christ's right to rule over my life. So that the kingdom involves a lifestyle of submitting to the will of God. That's the, that's the kingdom of God. Salvation and sanctification are both involved in this concept of the kingdom. And I think that's uh, important to observe. Now the Jews again primarily were looking for a military kingdom where the Messiah would come and defeat their enemies and bring prosperity to the nation. But the kingdom promised in the new covenant would transcend the boundaries of Israel and would actually reach out and claim Gentile believers as well. They would become citizens of this messianic kingdom along with believing Jews. And so we read, for example, this is what I think Jesus was referring to in John 10. When He said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will hear My voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Other sheep would be Gentile sheep. They're going to come in with My Jewish sheep, and they're going to be one flock together, one people with one shepherd. And that's the, the kingdom now goes beyond just Israel to all the nations. The elect scattered throughout all the nations. Jesus also said this in Matthew 8 when He says that many will come from east and west and recline at, at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sons of the kingdom 
are the Jewish unbelievers. I mean, the kingdom was promised to them, but they rejected it. And they're going to be cast out. But the ones coming from the east and the west, those are the Gentile believers that are coming into the kingdom through the grace of God and Jesus Christ. So what's the application of all this? Paul was preaching the kingdom of God that summarized the essence of what he was teaching both in the synagogue and in the school of Tyrannus. The kingdom of God. And that involves again the message of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if you're a sinner, there's no other way to have your sins forgiven other than through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And you must repent and you must turn from your sin and put your faith completely in Christ and Christ alone if you want to be saved and forgiven. That's part of the message of the kingdom. But the other part is that obviously when we come to Christ, we come to Him as Savior, but also as Lord, as our King, as our Master, So that when you come to Christ for salvation, you also realize you're coming to Him as Lord. So that now we are to desire to live under His rule, under His reign. That's the second part of the kingdom of God. So the application is that the message of of the kingdom implies both salvation and a new lifestyle. So that we should seek to live daily under the rule of our King, Jesus Christ. We don't belong to ourselves. Christ our King has sacrificed Himself to buy us for ourselves. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Him. He has the right to rule over us because He bought us on the cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now again, this is where we're all challenged to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. It's far more than just being saved and enjoying our salvation. But to recognize that I'm in His kingdom. He's the king, and I'm his subject. And so part of the Christian life is the inner battle that we have with ourselves of wanting to live my life my way, live it according to my will, my desires, to pursue after my lusts, or do I submit to the authority of my king and seek to do his will and seek His desires, and be obedient to His laws. And that's the aspect of the kingdom. It's more than just the salvation. It's the living out on a day-to-day level. Who will I serve today? Am I going to serve me? Or am I going to serve my King? Because I am in His kingdom and He has the right to reign and rule over me because He bought me by His blood on the cross of Calvary. So we're to examine our hearts. We're to expose those areas where we're going astray. And we we find those areas in our life. Maybe in our marriage. When I'm not 
responding to my wife or my husband in a way that would be according to my king's commands. Or maybe it's in the area of the home. Or maybe it's my attitude at work or the way I work or the things I do at work. Or maybe it's the use of my free time. Am I submitting it to the will of my king? Am I seeking to live under his rule and his reign? That's what it means to be in the kingdom. It's to have the grace of salvation, but it's also to have that new heart that desires to live for His honor and His glory. So that living in the kingdom means and will teach us to pray, not my will, but Thine be done. And of course, the kingdom of God is is, uh, teaching us, leading us by the grace of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God to seek His will over our will. And what are the benefits of living in the kingdom by the grace of God? Well, they are, they are many. Just a few. Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Right? That's what we're to be doing. Seeking first His kingdom His reign and rule over my life. Every area of my life. I'm to be seeking for Christ to rule over every area. So seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You don't have to worry about your food and drink and clothing. God will provide for you. You seek His kingdom. And the blessings and the benefits is He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. For those who are seeking Him. Paul again says that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You need more of that? And we need to submit and yield to Christ and His kingship and authority over every area of our life. And the more the Spirit helps us to do that, the more we'll walk in righteousness and have His peace and have the joy of the Spirit in our hearts. And then finally, we will inherit the kingdom of God to come the full glory of the kingdom that Christ will bring at His second coming. All the fullness of the glory of heaven, living with our King forever in His presence, enjoying the the fullness of joy and pleasures forever. So that's, I think, what Paul was preaching. He was preaching the kingdom of God. The gospel for salvation, but also the challenge to live under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ on a day-to-day basis, over every area of our life, continually repenting when the Spirit shows us areas where we're falling short and seeking more grace from God to help us. So as we turn to the Lord's Supper, when you think of what is the, what is the great motivation for me as a believer in Jesus Christ and the Lord's Supper is only for believers. So if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, then uh, we would ask you to let the elements uh, pass you by. We uh, open up the Lord's Supper to every believer, whether you're a member of this church or not. I know we have some visitors here. uh, But we ask you just to examine your heart, confess any known sins, and then partake. But what's a great motivation to desire to live daily uh, under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ? The great motivation is the cross. It's what He endured. It's what He suffered. 
It's the torture, the agony in his body and soul that he endured to pay the penalty for all of our sins. He has the right to rule over us because he has bought us with his blood. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to him. And it's the cross It's the sacrifice, the love of Jesus Christ for a sinner like me that should motivate me to desire to live a life that pleases my King. To honor Him and to glorify Him. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we should do it with joy that Christ has died and suffered and forgiven us of all of our sins. And to think about His agony and His suffering but also to allow it to motivate my heart's Lord, because You have bought me, I belong to You. So God, help me to live under Your reign and rule today in every area of my life. Living in His kingdom because of the cross. And I hope that the Lord will help us to worship Him in that light today.